0: This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.: Have you guys ever heard of the Five love languages? Yeah, they are uh, words of affirmation, acts of service, gifts, quality time and physical touch. And uh, for those of you who might not know what these are, uh, if we were to think of the uh, five love languages in terms of Alice's perspective, Alice is our little six-year-old beagle. They would go something like this. Words of affirmation would be, oh, you cute puppy. Right, That's words of affirmation. Uh, acts of service would be like, Alice, let's go for a walk, at which point she's already halfway down the block. Uh, gifts would be when we go to put her food in her bowl, and man, she is there like lightning. That is a gift. Quality time with Alice is to just sit on the couch together. Come on, come sit up here. We, we said we weren't going to allow Alice up on the couch, and that lasted about six hours. And then physical touch, man, she loves getting her belly scratching right behind the ears, and you can tell when the leg gets going. But the love language, they they were a theory developed uh, by a man by the name of Dr. Gary Chapman after years of counseling uh, and marriage counseling as a pastor. And he began to see a pattern emerge as people uh, typically would express their love in one of five ways or one of five languages. And when someone expressed love to you in a different way, you don't always recognize it as love and therefore don't receive it as love. It's as if they're speaking an entirely different language to you. It's like when, when Rob comes and he sticks his head in my office and he'll say something in Malayalam, I'll be like, ah? Or uh, this week, I tried to impress him with a Malayalam phrase. I was just gonna say, I love you in Malayalam. And I walked in as he was making coffee, and I was like, yawn something, something. And he looked at me like, Huh? Are you stroking? I said it a second time, and he's like, Oh, I think I know what you're trying to do. This is cute. So, one more time, and he's like, What you meant to say was this. Point being, don't rely on Google Translate. (laughs) But we recognize love and we receive love when it's expressed in a certain way, a way that we have identified. And what we see in Scripture is that God identified the way in which his people, the people of Israel, were to express and live out their love for him. It was through their covenant faithfulness and obedience, expressing their love in the way they lived, in a way that was set forth in the covenant, a way that was to be holy and set apart from the rest of the world, a way that brought glory to God. But you don't have to flip through too many pages to see that is not how they lived. And what we saw in the opening three chapters of Hosea's story, a story that served as a metaphor for Israel's story, and a story that served as an introduction to his sermon here in the, the later chapters, is a, a story that has helped us see into the heart of God during this season of Lent, this extended season of reflection and repentance, seeing the extent of God's love by seeing the depth of our sin. And as he compares God's people to his unfaithful wife, people who he says committed great whoredom by forsaking God. Right? Rather than loving and worshiping God and God alone, as we just read in the Ten Commandments, they were sharing that intimacy with other gods and with other things. And as we saw last week, Hosea's sermon, it has a bit of a courtroom drama feel to it. Right, he's the, the district attorney presenting God's case against the people of the, the northern kingdom of Israel, and he, he began in chapter four by indicting them with three charges, right? that they had no knowledge of God, no steadfast love for God, and no faithfulness to God. And this morning, as we continue seeing into the heart of God through Hosea's sermon, we're going to look at the second charge, that of, of not loving God, as he announces the charge, shows us the impact of of the sin, the consequences of our sin, and closes by giving us the good news of Hosea. So if you haven't already, let's open our Bibles to the Old Testament book of Hosea. We're going to uh, begin in chapter 6. We're going to be in chapter 6 through 11 this morning. And uh, again, it's going to be about three-fourths, two-thirds of the way through your Bible there just before you get into Matthew. And Hosea begins this second charge in his sermon by expressing God's disappointment with his disobedient children. Right, he says in verse 4, he's like, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Right, God at this point, he is a, a frustrated parent. He, he's at his wit's end. He, he, he's tried everything and nothing works, nothing lasts. It needs not for long. And their love for him, he says, it's, it's like a morning cloud that drifts away. It's like the dew that, that goes away early and dries up. It was a simile that would have grabbed the attention of this largely agrarian culture living in this barren desert landscape where farmers, they were, they were fully dependent on the regular rhythm of the, of the seasonal rains that would come and of the, the morning dews for the crops. But Israel's love of God, it was, it was fleeting. It was inconsistent at best. There was no no vibrancy to their love, no regular rhythm to their worship. And they claimed to love God. They were like, I love you. But they didn't show that love. When things didn't go the way they had hoped, their love for God, it, it dried up. And when something else came along that they desired more than God, their love drifted away. And what we've seen is how they began to worship this Canaanite God by the name of Baal, this God of of prosperity and, and fertility, worshiping him in addition to Yahweh in hopes that Baal might provide what God was either unwilling or unable to provide them, thereby playing the whore we've seen throughout this book. Playing the whore and defiling that intimacy that was to be reserved for God, sharing that love with another God. And what we've seen throughout this book is the same is true of our love for God, isn't it? There's times when our love for God, it's, it's circumstantial at times, isn't it? Like, like Israel, it's, it's fleeting. It doesn't last. And when God doesn't do what you wanted him to do or give you what you felt you deserved, it's easy to like take back our love. We're gonna be the pouty kid who takes back our love and goes on down the street and gives it to someone else who will give us whatever we want. And it's hard to love and worship God when you're frustrated with him, isn't it? It's hard to love and worship God when you're angry at him, when you feel like he's either unable or unwilling to give you the things that you desire, the things you feel you deserve, as though God's withholding something from you. But not only is our love of God circumstantial, our love of God, it's situational, isn't it? It's situational in that we We are, we forget so easily, don't we? We forget easy. Our lives, they are so busy. They are so chaotic. Our attention is so easily distracted. Our affection so easily drawn away. We just simply forget about God. He he becomes an afterthought in our lives at times. And it's hard to love and worship God when you've forgotten all about him. When worship is only something you do when there's nothing better to do. When God seems like the one that's always new to you, like you're always having to reintroduce yourself to this, this person you see, like I know their name, but I forget their name, and you go up to him, you're like, remind me again, I know I've asked you like 99 times, but Pastor Ash said it's okay to ask you 100. What's your name again? And he's like, my name's God. Uh, some people know me as Yahweh, Lord, Elohim. I got lots of names. They're like, oh, that's right, I remember you now. We forget who he is, we forget that he's there. Our love is circumstantial, our love is situational, and number three, our love is emotional. And that oftentimes, it's nothing more than a feeling. It's an infatuation, like a junior high romance. I don't know what a junior high boyfriend and girlfriend do. It's just a, I got a girlfriend, I got a boyfriend, and that's kinda how we feel about God sometimes. Like you're on, you're on fire at first, like that passion, that, that intimacy. Um, but then as Dr. Chapman refers to it, the tingles, the tingles fade and they fizzle, don't they? And your love dries up like the morning dew. And it's hard to love and worship a God when it feels like you've fallen out of love. It was just a fad. It's not into him anymore. Moved on to someone else, right? No hard feelings though, right, God? But God's love for you, God's love for us, as his people, it's nothing like that. God's love, he, it doesn't give up on you. God's love doesn't forget about you. God's love doesn't move on from you. Because as we see into the heart of God, we see that God is abounding in steadfast love, David writes in Psalm 103. Right? It never fails. It never dries up. Because his steadfast love never ceases, it says in Lamentations 3. It never gives up, it never drifts away, and that is as true for us today as God's people it was for them then, amen? And God showed the extent of his love to his people, he says, by having hewn his prophets, his people by his prophets. Hewn them in by his prophets as far back as Moses and Samuel to Elijah and Elijah and now Amos and Hosea, slaying his people by his words spoken through the mouths of his prophets. Words of warning, words of judgment that would go forth as light, he says, exposing their sin that hid in the darkness and bringing it out into the light. Saying to his adulterous, idolatrous people, to to his own unfaithful bride in verse 6, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Or as Eugene Peterson writes in the message, I'm after a love that lasts. Not mere religion. What God desires is you. All of you. Your heart your soul, your mind. This verse here, it's all about the why behind the what. Right? The problem wasn't with the sacrifices or burnt offerings. I mean, after all, God is the one who prescribed this in the Mosaic Law, wasn't he? And so he's not, um, he's not going back on his word. He's not condemning the liturgy. He's not telling them to stop doing what he once told them to do. No, what he's doing here is he's questioning their worship. He's questioning the who, the why, and the how of their worship. Because their worship to God had, was no longer an expression of their love for God. It, they were no longer worshiping God alone, but worshiping God with Baal. That was the who. They were no longer bringing their sacrifices and burnt offerings in response to their sin, but in order to manipulate God. They, they gave offerings effectively as a bribe to get God to do what they wanted him to do. That was the why, and then he questions the how, because there was no longer an authentic response to God, to who he is, to what he had done for them, and for all that he had promised to do for them. It had become a hollow, mechanical ritual because their hearts had become dry and empty. They were just just going through the motions. They were just checking off the boxes. God's desire, hear God's desire, it's for his people to worship him out of their steadfast love of him, out of their knowledge of him in response to who he is and in response to his love for them. And so hear God's heart through his words as I read this one more time. For I desire steadfast love, not just sacrifice. I desire knowledge of God, not just burnt offerings. Right, our worship of God is an expression of our love of God, isn't it? Our worship of God is an expression of our love for God. It is in response to who he is. But when the why and the who and the how of your worship is off, and like we've all been there, haven't we? We've all been in those seasons where it's just, it's just off. It's easy for worship to feel hollow and mechanical, isn't it? It's easy for this to feel like mere religion, just a box that you check, a religious ritual. And four years ago, when we made the change to taking communion weekly, you know, some expressed a concern that it might become mechanical. But that's true of any aspect of our liturgy, isn't it? It's true of the songs we sing, it's true of the prayers we pray, it's true of the the creeds we recite. My gosh, it's probably even true of my sermons at times, you feel like, oh, I've heard this one before, right? It's okay, you can laugh. It's just another sermon about who God is, what God's done, and all he's promised to do. I kind of hope and pray that's the one sermon I preach to you every Sunday here, or at least some version of it. It's not only true of our corporate worship, though, like our individual worship can become that way, can it? Serving, reading, praying. But we but when um when praying starts to become mechanical, we don't stop praying, do we? Until we feel the urge to pray. When when reading becomes mechanical, we don't stop reading. When serving becomes mechanical or we're serving for the wrong reasons, we don't stop serving. So what do we what do we do? How do we look at this? I um Well, Here's how my church history professor, Dr. Manich, here's how he responded to aspects of worship feeling mechanical. One day in class, he asked us, um, who here attends a church that recites one of the creeds regularly? You know, whether it's the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, a few people raised their hand. And then he asked, like, what do you think the danger is, the risk of reciting a creed, not just regularly, but like every week even? And sure enough, first-year seminary student sitting in the middle of the front row, because that's where first-year seminary students sit, raised his hand, Dr. Manish called on him. And this poor kid, he took the bait, and like, you could see it from the back row, it was like a car accident in slow motion, He says, it's going to begin to feel mechanical. You're going to just say the words without even thinking about it. Dr. Manich, he nodded. He says, so so the risk of my two girls, he has two daughters, the risk of my two girls having grown up in a church that recites the creed every week, right? this beautiful summary of our belief of who God is as he's revealed himself in Scripture as Father, Son, and Spirit, You're saying the danger is that it might become so ingrained in their minds and in their hearts and in their being that they can say these words without even thinking about it? And you call that dangerous? You could hear a pin drop in that room. Don't take the professor's bait. And reciting the creeds written by the early church councils, they remind us of who God is. Uh, Taking communion every week, it reminds us of what God has done. And so my question then is, why wouldn't we regularly pursue these practices that strengthen our knowledge of God and deepen our love of God? My gosh, why don't we take communion five times a Sunday? See, when worship becomes repetitive, when it begins to feel mechanical, like a box you just checked, like mere religion, the issue is not in the worship, but in the heart that worships, amen? Needing a change, not in our liturgy, but in our hearts, To be honest, I have found incredible comfort in the familiarity of liturgy over these last couple of years, forming this sort of muscle memory, especially a couple of years ago in 2021, which I've shared with you was a dark season for me. But the familiarity of the songs we sing, of the prayers we pray, the creeds we recite, the listening to and preaching of Scripture and in taking communion, all of that is an act of worship, even when and especially when you least feel like worshiping. The liturgy carries you through those dark seasons when your faith has run dry. We lean on that liturgy. And that's exactly what I did when I was in a time where like, I didn't know what to pray a couple of years ago. I didn't have any words. And so I turned to the words of the church. We've got 2,000 years of incredible prayers that we can pray as our own. Whether it is the Psalms, whether it's the Book of Common Prayer, whether it's from the church fathers or the reformers. This was the book that got me through a good chunk of 2021. It had the catechisms. It had the Psalms. It was a liturgy for my daily worship, as the subtitle reads. And so whenever you come and ask me, hey, my prayer life's just run dry. Do you have anything I recommend? Yeah, I do. And on occasion, Amazon delivers it overnight, and it's here on Sunday morning, so you can hand it to somebody before service starts. Because all of this that we do in worship, it is reminding you of God's love for you and reviving your love for God, your worship of God. Hosea's sermon, this whole sermon, it it serves as a reminder of what love is, that love, it is not an emotion that you feel, but a choice you make and an action that you take. God chose to love us, didn't he? God expresses his love for us. He acted out all that love. And we respond doing the same, choosing to love God, even when we're mad, even when we're angry, even when we're disappointed. Our love for God is not based on fleeing circumstances, on a forgetful situation or emotional feelings, but on who God is, who is himself. Love, the apostle John says, expressing our love for God through our worship of God. This whole time together is how we love God, one of the ways. Loving God with our heart and soul and mind. And as we return back to the courtroom, Jose, he goes on to reveal, just as he did last week, the devastating impact of sin, how the the lack of steadfast love for God, it leads to a lack of love for others. It leads to a lack of love for others as evidenced by five accusations of the evil that the people had inflicted on others. And the first accusation, he says, is that our hearts are violent. Our hearts are are violent. And he compares their transgressing of the covenant in violent pursuit of their heart's desires. They're they're dealing faithlessly with God by living outside the balance he has established. He compares it to a band of assassins, right? He's referring here to the story of Pekah and 50 men from Gilead who assassinated King Pekahiah a claiming the throne for himself, a, a story that we read in 2 Kings 15. And the violence in their hearts towards God, their spiritual whoredom as he refers to it. He says, this is what will lead to your own defilement. Our hearts are violent. Our hearts are deceptive, he says. Intentionally deceiving others like a thief breaking in, he says. Even thinking that they were deceiving God, that they were going to get away with this. But in reality, the only person they were deceiving was themselves. It's sort of like um, any of y'all ever sneak out at night, get home a little late after curfew growing up? If you're in youth and you're in here, this is where you plug your ears for a few minutes. I don't want to be giving you any advice. There's, there's a punchline at the end, mom and dad, don't worry. Like, you you sneak out, and you you think you could sneak back in after curfew without mom even knowing it. My mom, she sat at the computer right at the garage door. There was no sneaking in past mom. But um, I thought I could at least get away with whatever had happened that night, not realizing that she already knew before I even pulled in the driveway, Uh, because that's how small town Iowa works, even before cell phones. I don't know how it happened. Parents spoke telepathically, I think, from farm to farm. But not only that, I thought, you know, the next morning at breakfast, like, I wasn't getting punished yet. I got away with this. Maybe they forgot. None of that was true, though, uh, by the way. I remember sitting at my sister's on her swing in the backyard and, and learning that my mom, she saw everything. My mama, she knew everything. And my mama, oh, my, she remembered everything. That one Friday night when you came home at 3.06? <laughs> thought it was going to be four, but you were a little late getting out of the car. Mom sees all, knows all, remembers all. Mom sees all, knows all, remembers all. Anybody else? I'm just going to do all three of you to, All five of you together. Moms, see all, know all, remember all. Good? Can I see some heads nod? Tim's going to cover this again this afternoon in Redemption Youth. I don't know what he, no, he's going to talk to you about Jesus. But the same way, what we've seen here is like, we saw this last week, like nothing's hidden from God, is it? Nothing's hidden. And while his desire was to restore his people, that required his judgment to bring about his justice, right? Judgment brings about his justice, revealing the evil that they had done, that he had seen, so that they could then be healed, he says. But not only are our hearts violent and deceptive, number three, our hearts, they are corrupt. They're corrupt. He's comparing them to the evil and treachery burning in their hearts. He compares it to a heated oven left unchecked, left unattended, burning with uncontrollable ambition and smoldering anger, he says. And while the people appeared to be celebrating their kings, yay, king, in their hearts, they were committing adultery against them, devouring their rulers, not figuratively, but literally, as four kings were assassinated and fallen in just a 12-year period of time assassinated by their own people. But it's not just our hearts that are impacted by sin. Our minds are as well, because number four, he says our minds are foolish. We are foolish. I don't care what you got in grades in school, how many times you made the honor roll, we're fools. He compares us to a cake not turned, meaning that one side was burned and one side was raw because on one hand, they, they didn't turn to God. They didn't seek his wisdom for any of this. Right. Instead, they turned to and trust in their own foolish wisdom. But on the other hand, they were becoming a pawn in someone else's game. They were being manipulated by outsiders, strangers devouring their strength. He writes without even realizing it. They were foolish. Number five, their minds—they were gullible. They were silly and easily seduced. They were without any sense, any wisdom. They were looking to Egypt for help. They were paying tribute to Assyria, hoping that they would keep from invading. Like, who pays their invading enemy? Gullible people do. They were being baited into a trap to bring them down, disciplined for their idolatrous, adulterous hearts. And for a moment here in the sermon, the courtroom becomes a cemetery. And his indictment becomes a eulogy. As God, he laments his people's lack of love for him he laments their lack of covenant faithfulness and obedience to him god he he raised israel like a father raises a child yet they strayed from him and devised evil against him it says and their rebellion would lead to their destruction their rebellion would lead to their destruction and even when they cried out to god it says their princes when their princes fell by the swords swords wielded by the invading enemies that they paid tribute to they weren't crying to God from their heart yet. And the impact of their sin, right, seeing into the heart of God, it allows us to better see into our own hearts and minds, doesn't it? Seeing our own lack of love for God and how that leads to a lack of love for others. As we not only fail to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind, we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves, inflicting violence on others. Deceiving others, establishing corrupt systems that oppress others, seeing how easy it is for our hearts to direct our love inward rather than upward and outward, fooled into loving ourselves, ball, seduced by our own heart's selfish desires. But back in the courtroom, God, he sounds the trumpet, warning his people of the consequences they would face for their lack of love, for having transgressed the covenant and rebelling against the law. And there's two types of warnings here. There's a, there's a warning of the consequences they're going to face in the final days leading up to their destruction that we see here in chapter 8. He, he says uh, there, there's a vulture circling around them, meaning they were almost dead. That there was an enemy that was in pursuit of them warning them of how their, of the national consequences they would face as a people, how their political rebellion of appointing their own kings rather than God's kings would lead to their national destruction. They would reap what they sow. They would be devoured by these strangers that they thought they knew and that thought that they could trust. These hired lovers, these nations they allied themselves with and paying tribute to, they were going to turn on them, and they were going to leave them writhing, he says, Wandering alone like a donkey left in the desert, they'd face national consequences, but he would also warn them of the religious consequences that they would face, showing how their spiritual rebellion, their, their creating of their own gods, it would lead to their religious destruction. God re- rejecting their worship, shattering the gods they had made and the altars they had built and refusing to accept their offerings. But he wasn't just warning them of what would come before exile, he was also warning them of the consequences they would face in their days of exile following their destruction. Consequences for having played the whore and forsaking their God, warning them that this time of abundance that they enjoyed in the land of Canaan, it was going to come to an end. And they would no longer be satisfied by the wine that they once enjoyed as the new wine of exile shall fail them, he says. There would be no abundance or excess or satisfaction in exile because there would be no more of God's provision for them. There would be no more festivals and feasts of worship in exile because there would be no more of God's presence with them. In fact, he describes exile as a type of death for them that rather than celebrating, they would be mourning. And he says these days of punishment that they had, they had come, and even though they were being warned of this, the people, they rejected Hosea's warning. They, they thought he was a fool. They thought he was a madman. They thought he'd gone crazy, when in fact he says, I was your watchman. I was your guardian. I was the one looking after you. But I think this reveals how deep the hatred in the house of God ran, how deeply corrupted their hearts had become because they didn't think they were doing anything wrong. They didn't think they were doing anything wrong. They thought they were innocent of the charges being brought against them. They're like, why don't we just dismiss this and get back to our lives? They still didn't get it. And so like a good preacher, Hosea, he, he used some illustrations to help make the point. He told some stories. He wanted them to see just how far they had fallen. And so he tells four illustrations here. And what he's doing, he's he's contrasting the vibrancy and the intimacy of their past relationship with God to the apathy that they currently felt, hoping that this nostalgia, like remembering the good old days, hoping it would revive and reawaken their love for God. And so in the first one, he he compares them to to a luscious grape In the wilderness, a wild grape. If you've ever been on hiking and you you find berries and you're like, I think I can eat these, and you eat them and they're really good and you don't die from them because they weren't poisonous, right? That's a really cool find in the middle of the forest, isn't it? It's just best if we don't eat the wild berries, if you don't know, or mushrooms, or just don't eat anything. Take it with you and then take your wrapper back out with you. Amen? Okay, back to the text. They were like a luscious grape in the wilderness. They were like the first fruit on the fig tree in season. But now their roots had dried up. They couldn't bear fruit anymore. And God rejected them because they hadn't listened to God. They hadn't loved God. The second illustration, he compares them to a a luxuriant vine bearing fruit. But now their heart had turned false. Attributing the prosperity that they were experiencing to Baal. And he says the more fruit they produced, the more altars to Baal they built. And God, he was going to break down their altars. And the ruins of these altars, they would be overgrown by thorns and by thistles. It would look like a ghost town. And then the third, he says that they were once like a trained calf, working hard for God, plowing fields, sowing righteousness for God. But now they had turned and they were planting evil and they would reap the injustice that they had sowed. They would be slaughtered by their enemies. And Hosea here, he's not just showing the consequences of our sin. He's showing the consequences of our lack of steadfast love for God. How our rebellion against God leads to our own discipline at the hand of God. He wants you to see here how, how good things are when our hearts pursue God, when when we desire God, when we worship God, but also how devastating things are when our hearts turn from him, when they forget him, when we are drawn to and love other gods. Those are the first three, but this fourth illustration, it's different. It's got a different tone to it. For one, you'll notice Hosea is no longer speaking. God, he he grabbed the microphone and, and God's speaking directly to his people now. But not just that, the first three didn't end well, did they? The fourth one ends differently. Instead of death and destruction, it ends with love and with life. And it's here that we see the good news of Hosea. He says in in chapter 11, uh, he says in verses 1 through 4, he writes, When Israel was a child, I loved him. Remember, God's talking now. And out of Egypt, I called my son the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they didn't know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and I fed them. He's describing God here as a loving father, the kind who, the kind who gets down on the, on the ground and plays games and Legos with his kids, the kind of a father who goes to all the games, all the concerts, the kind who, who helps with homework. A father who was gentle with them and, and kind toward them, who who found them when they were lost, and who held them when they were scared, the kind of father we all want to have, that men that we want to be. But Israel he describes as a stubborn, rebellious child who took his father's love for granted and had no love for his father. And as a result, they would be defeated, they would be exiled. He says, because they have refused to return to me, refusing to repent, bent on turning away from me and turning toward their sin. And even though they would call out and pray to Baal, their most high, God was going to expose their foolishness and Baal's impotence as one who was unwilling to respond and unable to raise them up, unwilling to raise even a finger to help them, Peterson writes in the message. And he's showing us here how every other God that we turn to in trust in lies to us and will fail us in time. Our idols lie to us and they will fail you. And we see into the heart of God here as we hear the words of a father crying out in anguish, asking, How can I give you up? Right? You, can, you can begin to feel the intensity of his love for his beloved and chosen children. How can I hand you over? How can I destroy you the way I did Adma and Zeboim on the day that I destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? I, I can't even bear to, to think about it. Yet, as my anger grows, so does my compassion, my heart growing warm and tender. He says in verse 9, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. I don't love the way they do. I am the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Because as Old Testament scholar Michael Barrett writes in his book, Love Divine and Unfailing, the Gospel According to Hosea, Sin does not frustrate grace. Rather, sin is the occasion for grace to shine. The way we've worded it throughout this series, throughout this season of Lent, is that we see the depth of our sin. We begin to see the extent of God's love, don't we? And as a result of God's grace and his goodness and his love, he writes in verses 10 and 11, they shall go after the Lord. And he will roar like a lion when he roars. And his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. This is a promise of ultimate victory. God roaring like a lion and victorious over our enemies. It is a promise of a a new exodus leading us out of, of the wilderness of sin. The promise of a future return from exile, a return to God, a return to his presence, and the promise of a divine, unrestrained love of a father for his children. A love that knows no bounds, revealing the extent of God's love for you, for me, for us, for all of his creation. Showing us that no matter How far you may have strayed, or how long you've been away, no matter how dry your faith may be, or your attention having drifted away, no matter how far you've fallen, or how many times you failed, you cannot outrun God's love for you. Time and time again, we can come back to Him, to His arms. Welcoming us home, receiving his love, embracing that love, abiding in that love and the safety and security of his arms. And so if you're here this morning and you're like, know, I just don't feel worthy of that love. I've done nothing to deserve it. That's true, you, you haven't. But that's the good news of Hosea. That's the good news of the gospel is that if you are feeling if you have felt or if you ever do in the future feel undeserving of God's love what I need you to hear is that God's love for you is not dependent on your love for Him it is not dependent on your response to His love no His love is simply dependent on who He is a God who is Himself love and God showed His love for us and that while we were sinners Christ died for us respond to that like what else is there to say it feels a bit like a mic drop moment for God doesn't it I'll be honest I I didn't know what else to say after this I didn't know how to close after that and so what I want to do is I just want to read to you Paul's words I'm going to let the words inspired by the Holy Spirit wrap this up for us because you want to know what else we should say it's that if God is for us who can be against us Nobody, nothing. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or whatever else you can think of? No, none of it. Nothing can separate you from the love of God for those that are in Christ Jesus, amen? in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am certain that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the good news. That's the good news we've heard. That's the good news we have receive, that's the good news that if we're honest is a little too good to be true at times. And so I want to give you a moment to sit. I want to give you a moment to truly receive that love for the first time, for the hundredth time again and again. Embrace that love. Abide in that love. Sit in the silence and stillness of that love. as you do, as you reflect on the extent of God's love for you, I want you to reflect on the depth of your sin that reveals that love, to repent of that sin, to examine your heart as the Spirit stirs. And so let's take this next moment, bow your heads, and sit in that love, receive that love, reflect on that. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.